Welcome to the Good, the Bad, and the Sequel Q&A. My name's Doug. So our third annual Scary Sequel Month, it is rolling along and it's picking up steam. We're almost at the end. We're over the halfway hump. But the third movie sequel that we have coming at you is Bride of Reanimator, which we're going to be reviewing next episode. And that was so much fun. And we had an amazing guest. She's big on Twitter in the horror community. Her name's Char. You can find her at Char underscore. She was such a blast. So make sure you tune in for that. And this week's interview is one of my favorites. We just talked about so much. Not only his filmography, way before that, you know, how he grew up, how he got into film, a lot of the social and political issues that were going on during his time growing up in Atlanta, Georgia. And of course, I'm talking about director and producer of Bride of Reanimator, Brian Usna. Man, Brian was such a blast. His story about how he fell in love with film is like so many other stories, but his transition into it how he figured out what was going on behind the camera. And it is, it is a story that you're going to love. And we talked about obviously hit reanimator, how he got that off the ground, bride of reanimator society, night of the living dead three, just so many stories from his, and I'll put his IMDB in the episode notes. So you could see all the other things that we didn't get to cover in the interview that are just so amazing. You could check out one of my favorites on there. You're going to be floored. He worked on a big time, one of the biggest kids movies that Disney ever put out. And they're actually making another sequel next year, if that gives you a hint. But yeah, so Brian's great. Before I start the interview, please, if you haven't already, subscribe wherever you're listening. Also, follow us on all social media at sequels only, whether it be Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We're on it all. So here it is. A director who I love talking to because directors are storytellers and Brian Usna is a master storyteller. Enjoy. You've got the good background. I do. I, all your. So that's that's like that's like green screen stuff. That's what I should have. <laughs> I should have like a like a background that's like animated or something yeah but you know what <laughs> given your style of directing and what was in your movies that era was more like it is what you're what you're seeing is what you're seeing it wasn't any green man, scheme what you're effects. seeing is what you get dude. Yeah. right man this is gonna be so much fun i've been a, such a fan like growing up i'm sure a ton of people say the same thing to you but growing up i loved horror they had like one of those mom and pop uh, video stores in jersey where i grew up Absolutely. And it'd be like my dad would give me a couple bucks every day in the summer or every Friday night. We go rent movies and me and my buddy, we went through like every horror movie one summer, just like as much as we can ingest. And like nowadays, everyone that everyone that was there, yes, right? Exactly. And now I, <laughs> but some of them are not good, but all of them are interesting. They're all watchable. That's what I love about 80s, 90s movies. Yeah, I remember for when I would go to when I'd go to Blockbuster and go to the horror section. I would I'd go through them and and I remember there was one called Mortuary that I always look and I wouldn't rent it. I think John Beekler did really? effects or something. And and eventually I watched it, but for like it was one of the ones that I always passed passed by. You know, there's 
you kind of go, I need a reason to see this, you know. <laughs> there was an art to it because sometimes you'd be duped by the movie cover. And you know what was great about back then? I know it sounded like a, I'm da- dating myself. I guess I am. But you rent, if my dad let me rent a movie, we were watching that movie no matter what. Even if we watched the first 10 minutes and it exactly. wasn't good, now it's like, all right, go to the next one. Go to the next one because you can do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's so much there. You know, there's so many things. What I, what I do these days, well, not for horror, but in general, is I I watch the Criterion Channel. Oh, okay. Which I don't know if you know that yeah. one. Yeah. And they curate, so they'll have like last month they had neo noir. Nice. And they'll have like twenty movies. I mean, they have a ton of stuff, but. You need a reason to watch something. Yeah. That's why they say leaving August 1st, you know. Oh, you know, I got to watch it. And, the, and, you know, I watched three or, I mean, generally I've always seen at least half of them and uh, of anything. And, um, but, you know, I watched a bunch of movies I'd always heard of. I'd always remember the title and I hadn't seen. And then I watched it. And you know it's very, very um, it it's satisfying. You you find stuff and you go, wow, yeah. I never saw this. There was one called Across 110th Street. I'd never heard of that movie. Wow, it, and it, it's like a crime, you know, it's a crime thing in Harlem. And you and you you watch it and go, you know, that's one I've never even heard wow. of. Before. When was that from? You know? What era? So there's something about curating. It's all these things are like 60s and 70s. Oh, cool. It's, um, you know, well, not even that. They can go to the night. It's called, you know, they label it now neo-noir. I don't know if you're into noir yeah, movies, yeah. which is basically those movies from post-World War II in which kind of everybody's bad. Yeah. You know? It's interesting because it paralleled the, you know, there's always like the men and their wives and their girlfriends and the boss, they're all like homicidal, right? They're, everybody's going to undo, in neo-noirs, there's always gangsters or people that have been in prison or out, or, you know, it's like Maltese Falcon. Is oh, okay. Noir, you yeah. know? I, not neo-noir, that's yeah. noir, right? So neo-noir is when you get to like Chinatown, right? Or in my book, like the big Lebowski, you know, that's neo-noir. That's like a Philip Marlowe story, you know, (laughs) kind of more contemporary, but, but you, you know, and it's movies like cotton comes to Harlem. These, these um, um, kind of, you know, back in the early seventies and late sixties, we had these like black exploitation movies. Some of them were, more black exploitation like blackula yes. or something or superfly right and then some of them tried to be more more mainstream but you still got this kind of dynamic uh of of you know of african americans involved in generally they were in new york yeah. right but but this, these are, you know, they're very, you know, really interesting. And Chinatown, I mean, that's a great neo-noir picture, you know. Now, this month, it's all, it's John Houston. Oh, yes. <laughs> so he's done some. Oh, yeah. Stuff, my bu- uh, you know? An actor that I'm helping in a book, this actor, Larry Hankin, 
he had a good story when he auditioned for John on Annie. It was like one of his, probably one of his last movies. Can you, I can't believe that John Huston directed Annie. I saw that up there. I went, really? Yeah. The Maltese Falcon, the treasure of the Sierra Madre, the under the volcano, the yeah. night of the iguana. Annie, really? <laughs> it's like if you told me that he directed the Wizard of Oz, you know? <laughs> well, you have one on there, which we'll get to, that is kind of different than everything. But what I like to do with these is find out, like, where people started, you know, growing up, what influenced you to, you know, pursue it. This isn't the easiest job ever. You have to really love it. It's not like somebody could wake up one day and said, you know, I'm going to work in Hollywood because the unemployment in it is like, I don't know, 99%. It's so hard to make it. So for you, you grew up, you, you were born overseas in Fil- the Philippines, right? And where did you spend your childhood? Well, I, um, I'll put it this way. When I went to high school, when I was in the, when I was 14, when I started the ninth grade, I was living in my fifth country. Wow. <laughs> So I lived, I only was in the Philippines for a few years. And then I was in Nicaragua, Panama for the most time. So I was in Panama for seven years. All my, all my grammar school was Panama, Puerto Rico for junior high, or what they call middle school now. Back then it was called junior high. And then I went to Atlanta, Georgia, right when the civil rights movement was hitting. And of course, my parents were Midwesterners, immigrants from the upper Minnesota. (laughs) So I was a, you know, I grew up in, I guess, kind of a Midwestern culture. And I went to American schools, even though we always lived. My dad was not military. He was an engineer that worked for the government. So we didn't qualify to like live on a base or something. We lived in the, you know, in the city, in Panama City, in Managua, in, you know, in, um, you know, we did, you know, in town, but we got to go to schools that were on the base, for example, or in the canal zone. So I went to American style schools, but when I went home, I was, this, with on the street with my neighbors who were Panamanian. Wow. I never, I never, I mean, when I was in grammar school, once a week, someone would come and give you a Spanish lesson. But when I went home, I had to speak Spanish because that's what all the kids spoke. <laughs> so I, I grew up speaking kind of this really rotten street Spanish kid stuff, right? Because I never got educated in it. But I had a great accent, (laughs) which really helped me when I, in 1998, when I moved to Barcelona, Spain, and started the um, Fantastic Factory, because I was working completely in in a Spanish company. Everybody there, I was the only guy who wasn't a Catalan or a Spaniard. So then I was like, it was like the bath of fire, right? I, everybody thought I spoke better than I did because, because my accent was good. But my grammar, my tense, everything technical was kid stuff. 
you know. So I really had to step up to the plate because, you know, I made nine movies yeah. in Barcelona and worked on many more. So, but anyway, that's where I grew up mostly was Latin America. And then I went to Atlanta, Georgia, right at the Martin Luther King time, which was also the time it was exactly the same time that Forey Ackerman started Famous Monsters Magazine. And Stan Lee and what's his name, Ditko, um, started Marvel Comics. Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four were the first. And I bought all of them, right? For the first couple of years, I bought, you know, every Marvel, every Famous Monsters. You know, that's how I learned about learn kind of to appreciate i don't know what was happening i guess in la you know because i was way further out than the boonie you know i was i was so far out of it you know where i lived monkeys ran around in the trees (laughs) you know what i mean and but i would read these like famous monsters and it would tell you about these 50s horror movies, these universal horror movies. Of course, I'd never seen. Wow. And um, and that's where I really got. I, I think, in a way, my my horror movie education came about a lot because of Forey Ackerman and Famous Monsters. Wow. So, what was your first step after that? Like, you love that. Like a ton of people. Like we talked about, like going to the video store, and like so many people like love movies. What was your, how did you think that, hey, this is how I can work into the business? What was your first step? Well, I, like everybody, I mean, these days, everybody is a, um, has a camera, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, it's crazy now. But when I, when I was in high school, I, um, I, May, I shot on a eight millimeter camera with a friend of mine and we mostly did effects. You know, we mostly did stuff that would be a special effect. And he kind of knew something about editing. I had no idea. And, but I was, I was a horror movie fan at that point. I was, I, from the time I was really young, the first time I saw a horror movie, it really messed me up. I was very young. I used to go to the matinee in Panama on Sundays. And we'd all walk over to the the Lux Theater with all the Panamanians. And for like, I don't know, it was 15 or 20 cents. You would get like a Three Stooges short, uh, uh, a, you know, Rocket Man RKO serial, some trailers and then you'd see a movie or two. It could be anything. They didn't tell you what. Oh, it was. Wow. And one time I saw the creature with the Adam Brain, which is a um, not a great movie. It's a zombie. You know, it's a Living Dead movie, and it scared the hell out of me. I think I was five or six years old, and I couldn't sleep. And you know, the thing about horror, the thing about horror is it gives you. The feeling of a horror of horror is visceral. It's kind of like a it's a physical goosebumps inside, you know. And it's like, and I always say that if something's scary, 
it's kind of a thriller. Yeah. Right? <laughs> it's scary. Somebody's chasing around you. They're going to get you, you know. But if you add fluid, blood or goop or pus, it's horror, right? If you add metal, then it's sci-fi. Yeah. But the but the the feeling of horror is kind of a skin crawling feeling. And I I don't know why it attracted me because I just became, you know, then I saw like the seventh voyage of Sinbad, the Ray Ray Harryhausen yeah. stuff, which um which was which still actually that is a very good movie. And it had a scene in it with um where this woman is put into an urn with a snake and the magician breaks the urn and she's a snake woman, you know, which was very disturbing to me, almost more disturbing than the skeleton with the sword for my nightmares because it, it had a sexual component and really horror generally has, is basically sex and death. And that's, I think, why adolescents really like it. Almost every adolescent connects with horror movies. Once you get into your 20s or late teens and 20s, you're not that interested. And certainly later, horror is like not paying your mortgage or something. But some people, like me, are horror fans their whole oh, life. Yeah. Of course, I made it my business. You know, I made it my, but I think even if I had never gone into it and never made it my business, I would still be a fan. You know, I would still have an interest in it. And I'm not sure why that is, why some people are more inclined or not. I mean, when I was in even grammar school, I was reading tons of fairy tales and, and fantasy things and, and, um, you know, ghost stories. And, you know, I would, you know, when I go camping and my Boy Scout thing and they'd tell a ghost story, you couldn't go back to your tent because you're too scared, you know. And the first comics I ever bought were horror comics. Even when I was like six years old and I'd get a dime, I'd buy a comic and be a horror comic. And it was like it going circling back to the film noir you know, in the EC horror comics, like Tales from the Crypt and stuff, everybody was always going to kill everybody yeah. else, you know. The wife was always unfaithful. She's going to kill the husband. The husband's going to kill her. The, you know, every, and then somebody's coming back to life and somebody's cutting off a head. They're always eating brains, you know. That was EC comics. I didn't understand the satire of it back then even though I did learn about satire by reading early Mad Magazines, because Mad Magazines kind of introduced me this idea of exaggeration that makes a yeah. point, you know? And I remember the first Mad Magazine I ever, I ever saw, I was in like grammar school, somebody showed it to me and there was a page that had, you know, back then, um, match everybody there were matchbooks everywhere right every business had a matchbook because people smoked and that's how you, <laughs> there were no lighters and the matchbooks always had like a promotion be a plumber here fill out the matchbook and send it oh, in wow 
and you can get the get the 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 course for two ninety seven or something. And so Matchbooks advertised everything, and so this Mad Magazine page was like Matchbooks for like be a robber, <laughs> be a bank robber, you know, be a stick up man. And I read it. I, I must have been in second or third grade, and I was like, "This, how could they do this? This is this is terrible, right?" <laughs> and it took me a little while to realize, no, that's satire. And satire became a big part of my life because I realized that satire, in a way, it's kind of like when you mix two opposing elements, try to keep two two opposing ideas in your mind at one time, it becomes satirical. Of course, danger is it can become cynical. And cynicism is not a great place to be. But the idea of satire, and I think that affected me my whole life, because even in all the movies that I've done, generally, I have a sense of satire in them without Without making it forward, yeah. I don't, you know, I don't want it to be, but you know, there's a sense that if you exaggerate things and put them together in a kind of illogical way or logical, but illogical, there's sometimes a greater truth to be found, yeah. you know, in a way you get a, you get a, you get a better understanding because things really don't kind of lay out as comfortably or as as we'd like so so anyway i think that was a lot of where my um you know how i approach things and i also loved like surrealist art you know which is basically or expressionism that what you're expressing in art is how you feel not what's real right it's not that you're trying to make an, a depiction of the world you're trying to make a depiction about how you feel of the world and i think that's what a lot of film noir did with all the shadows and the and you know what i you know it gives you a feeling for this kind of idea that post world war 2 U.S. was the good guys. We were the kings of the world. The Germans were terrible. The Japanese were terrible. You know, the fascists were terrible. The communists are terrible. But Americans are good. But in film noir, you would see people getting out of prison, people just screwing each other, people being homicidal. And in a way, it it probably reflected a real reality, which is that a lot of people are not living on the straight and yeah. narrow. Sometimes because circumstances force them to, you know, like Le Miserable or something. It forces them to, to make a crime to just support themselves. Yeah. And then there's other people who are just somehow bad. Yeah. I don't know. They just decide that... They're going to be bad guy. You probably met them when you were even in junior high. You know, there's some kids, they just want to be bad yeah. kids. You know, maybe their parents beat them. Maybe they were abused as children or maybe not. 
maybe who knows where this stuff comes from. But I think that that, you know, the the horror movies for me were very expressionistic. They really, they're not real. They, they were never, it wasn't about realism. It was, um, you know, when you look at the, the like, I would say the horror genre, maybe as we know, as we express it, maybe it started with the universal horror movies of the thirties, the Frankenstein, Dracula, Wolfman. And you look at the world of Frankenstein or Bride of Frankenstein, this is some, some world that is, um, it doesn't exist anywhere, <laughs> right? It's like some, it's like a Disneyland of Gothic, you know, Transylvania or something. But, you know, the, the, you know, the James Whale movies, the, the distortions of the sets, it's almost like the cabinet of Dr. Caligari or something. And for me, when I really started getting serious about movies, I watched every silent movie I possibly could and read a book along the same way. And I just found that the, um, you know, the, the old silent movies, the Fritz Lang, especially, God, Metropolis and, and the um, Siegfried and, you know, these, I mean, these, these 20s, the movies in the 20s, the sets were incredible. They were so distorted and they really tried to, you know, there was a kind of a storytelling that was really cinematic. And I think that the best horror movies kind of bend, bend our idea of reality that way. And for me, they should always be thrillingly entertaining. Yeah. You know, even if it's something quite realistic as like Rosemary's Baby, right? Which is really good, but they do show the devil. <laughs> You know, I mean, you do actually see the devil rape somebody, but, you know, it's, but then you've got stuff that is much more extreme. Certainly the first movie I produced that Stuart Gordon directed, Reanimator. Yeah. I mean, come on, how realistic is that? But it's in its own way, it is just a, just a great entertainment with its own truth in a way. Or Evil Dead, you know, which I don't think holds up as well as Reanimator, but wow, what it certainly has sections of the original Evil Dead that are more scary than Reanimator ever yeah. got to, especially when they're down in the basement with the tape recorder. I mean, that's Lovecraft. They didn't call it it, but wow, that is scary. But then it goes into delirious, crazy comedy with the stop motion and the claymation. I mean, this is, that's entertain. that's horror. That's, that's the fun, for me, that's what I love about horror. I'm not so big on like a, you know, horror that is like, let's see, let's depict torture. Oh, I know, as, no, I know. Yeah. As detailedly as we can. I see horror more like a theme park ride. You know, it's more like you're getting a vertiginous thrill, but you're safe. Is it just in a movie theater or just at home with your projector? Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I think like you're talking about like the evoking emotions, like the first horror movie that I saw was like 
around the same age. I was like five or six and I saw Nightmare on Elm Street and I saw that and I was so freaked out. I couldn't sleep for like, and I was really that scared. And well, you saw your first movie. Your first horror movie is a lot better than the one I saw. Nightmare on Elm Street is really good. I mean, I saw it when I was already in the movie business. And I saw it at 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 a film market in Milan, Italy. And when I saw that movie, I went, wow, that is. Yeah, that's a that's a horror movie. You know, that is a great movie. And it is as macabre. I mean, the scene when he's in the alley and his arm stretches and it's just a mechanical effect. I mean, it's not it, it's not sophisticated. Oh, my God. That's oh, and the fact that they thought that's, what that's Wes when they did it. Everybody was like, it looks so silly. But when they watched it back, like how great that looks. But I think you're right. Like when it comes to evoking the emotion, like if I watch like the ones like a torture movie, it's like I'm trying to gross you out by showing you these things that are going to make you kind of squeamish. I want the ones like the fear, like I set up my projector in my yard at night and we live kind of in the country of Jersey, like the border of PA. So I want to watch a movie that like while I'm watching, like I watched American Werewolf in London a couple weeks ago. I've seen it a million times, but still being outside in the dark, just the whole circling when the wolf is circling both of them. I just want to have that fear, not from the gore part of it, the everything that leads up to that. Yeah. Well, the gore also can, I mean, that's a, the gore can be fun. Oh no, it can. Yeah. It's just, I think the thing that I have, I don't know, there's sort of a, I don't, I don't know. You know, I was actually never a big fan of, um, of the slasher movies. Although one of the biggest events in my life, when I was in junior high, when I first moved to Puerto Rico, I was probably 11 years old. We lived in an apartment before we got a place, a house to live in. And my mother took me to Psycho, which had just come out. Wow. And Psycho, back then, and I, it's impossible for people today to understand that when I was growing up, when you went to the movies, you didn't necessarily go when it started. You just went to the movies. And you waited until you'd seen everything, right? So you didn't necessarily have to go when it started because nobody kicked you out of the theater. They didn't, they didn't light up the theater and move everybody out and pick up all the popcorn <laughs> and lower the lights and bring in the new crowd. They didn't do it that way. They, you just could go in. Wow. And you tried to go in when it started. But if you didn't, you could wait until you got to, you say, this is where I came in. I think there's a saying of that that maybe people don't use anymore that you can use kind of in conversationally wow. where you go, hey, this is where I came in. I'm out of here, right? That was based, and that was much more prevalent before I was born in when there was no television and people went to the movies to see newsreels, right? They, you went to the movies, it was like going to watch TV with your community, yeah. right? And so you watch the newsreel, the, you know, the serial, the, the travelogue, the whatever, the previews, a movie, maybe another movie, and then they do it again. And trailers were called trailers 
because they came after the movie. They didn't come before it. Like after the movie was over, they would show you what's coming tomorrow. Because most most theaters used to show a different movie every day, except Friday, Saturday, Sunday, they would show the same double feature, say. So that's a, so in Psycho, when it came out, they had this new policy, which was nobody's let in after the movie starts. Yeah. <laughs> well, today that would be like, yeah. Right? But, but that was, it was like, you can't, don't give away the ending. Because of course the trick in Psycho is it's Norman is yeah. his mother. <laughs> and I'm sure for maybe for, sophisticated adults they kind of got all they kind of figured that out but man for an 11 year old kid i didn't i it was a shock to me you know it was shocking i'd never seen a toilet on screen psycho's the first hollywood movie that showed the toilet really i didn't know you that know? remember when when she gets killed in the in the in the yeah. bathroom in the shower they he flushes everything down. They never showed toilet. Wow. You know, I mean, it's hard for people today to imagine what it, you know, what things were like. So, but that's all also the problem with watching any movie outside of its era. It's very difficult to watch movies from the twenties, thirties, forties. Jesus Christ. When I watched Frankenstein, it was in the sixties on TV, right? And so Frankenstein was made in the 30s. What does that mean? It was 30 years old. 30 years ago. Yeah. You no, know, we were making reanimators. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like Frankenstein. Yeah. Or or more than that. It's 40 years ago. What yeah, am I talking about? Well, it's 30, about? what, six? 30 Thir years ago was, was Return of the Living yeah, Dead. Yeah, 30 years ago, Return of the Living And then brought or Return of the Living Dead 3. Yeah, yeah, 93. Yeah. The original Return of the Living Dead was with Reanimator, which I think Return of the Living Dead, Reanimator, and Evil Dead all came out sort of in that same period. And they were, I think, the most, I think they were the the movies of that era, you know, or for horror movies, for, for horror, because Return of the Living Dead, yeah. come on. That's, that's Dan O'Bannon's the guy that showed everybody how to make an EC comic, how to make a horror comic from the fifties on screen. Before that, it was like creep show. Oh, we'll make it a comic because we'll show comic frames. We'll make it, we'll make like these, you know, primary colors and everything's gotta be a spare empty frame because that's the way the comic books except for Marvel used to look. But Dan O'Bannon said, no, no, you know what? You know what EC Comics is about? Eating brains. It's zombies. It's fleshy. Without Return of the Living Dead, there'd be no Tales from the Crypt. Joel Silver didn't invent that. He just took it from Dan O'Bannon. <laughs> so, Brian, how did you get to? So, you're talking about you and your buddy with your camera that you had, your eight millimeter. So, how many years after that was when you? I think you had a, did you have a Bolle camera? Is that what you shot self-portrait in brains? Bolex, Bolex. Bolex. A Bolex, okay. yeah. Well, you know, I never thought that um, when I went to college, 
I studied religion and art. And I didn't know what I was going to do. And plus, I, I went to college in 1967, which was probably the worst time to ever go to college, <laughs> yeah. right? Because it was like the summer of love. It was the burst, the, the counterculture. It was the revolution. It was kind of riots in the streets, you know, the civil rights movement, the Black Panthers, the, you know, Woodstock and Altamont. And it was all this, you know, the seemed like it's a little similar to today yeah. in that it felt like the whole country was just going to fall apart. The difference then was there was a generation, they used to call it the generation gap, because they were sending all the 18-year-olds to Vietnam, yeah. and a bunch of them were getting killed. And there was a whole, I guess what they called the me generation, which I guess now you call it the baby boomers. But it was, it was like after World War II, everybody, after World War II, everybody had a bunch of kids. And things were good in this country, in the sense, besides McCarthyism and the whole jingoistic right wing, um, there was a, everybody is doing good, you know? I mean, at least there was a lot of opportunity. So people, you could be a plumber, you could have your house. Today, you're a plumber, you can't even afford yeah. an apartment, you know? I mean, things of course now are quite out of, out of balance. In the 50s, there was a lot of opportunity and people indulged their kids. And I was one of those kids, although I was one of six kids, <laughs> you know, so it's not like my dad made that much money as an engineer, but, but life was okay. You could go to college. You could live in a split level house, you know, in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, but the problem was once you went, but what was happening in California was LSD, rock and roll, free sex, free love. I'm sorry, free love, not free sex. <laughs> Although, as one good friend of mine on a commune once said, because he was kind of a portly fellow, he said, yeah, he says, you know, it's free love for everybody but us fat guys. <laughs> Which I think everybody can relate to, right? Yeah. It's, you know, it's everything ends up being the same. But they, you know, back then, man, Timothy Leary was saying, you know, turn on, tune in and drop out. Well, turn on meant take drugs, take LSD, tune in and then get out of society because the revolution is coming. Well, unfortunately, I bought into that. <laughs> So I ended up just turning on, tuning in, dropping out, and um, and didn't prepare for kind of a life for like because I was too busy being an artist and being uh, searching for my soul or whatever, you know, hitchhiking across the country wow. and, and trying to break loose, you know, trying to be free and all this kind of stuff. And then, of course, the revolution never happened. That was the big disappointment. 
And all of a sudden you actually had to make a living still. And so then I started like being a carpenter because where I ended up living in North Carolina because my brother went to Duke University. I had gone to school in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And then I went down and I visited my brother at Duke even when I was in high school in Durham, North Carolina. And so finally I ended up going down there and ended up living in the country because at that time, or at least where my antenna were going, was you got to go back to the land, you know. Of course, I'm being very kind of satirical here, or at least I'm being looking at myself in a very kind of kind of a scan. Yeah. <laughs> but I wanted I I went and rented a house out in the country that didn't even have a bathroom, you know. It had a sink, but you had to go in the field. You had to make yourself a little uh, a, a outhouse to go to the bathroom, you know. But it was on the same dirt road as a commune, a political commune. And so then that was my neighborhood. And then there was a bunch of communes around there. And so you lived in this totally fantasy world of wow. like the revolution's coming and let's just raise goats and take a lot of drugs and, you know, play music. And <laughs> so it was like in no way preparing for life at all. But on the other hand, I had, um, I, when I started realizing I had to make a living, I, one of the things I was always into was art. And so I, I started getting back into that. And I, I actually had an art supply store and I sold art art supplies to the school. I also worked as a carpenter and then started making, um, you know, uh, like I'd go in with friends and we'd get a, like build a spec out. Oh, nice. And, and, and that, so I just started however I could make any money, right? I would do it. I even had a, had an interest in a, like a beer joint, a bar in the college town, wow. you know? Where you bring in bands and you're basically selling beer and sandwich shop by the dorm, you know. And um, so I had arts, arts say I, like I would have a, a ex exhibition and some people would buy a painting, you know, <laughs> you know, whatever. But with that art kind of orient, I was always into art, you know, drawing and that stuff. And I ended up, I was doing photography. I had a black, uh, a, a dark room and I had a camera, and, but I was doing it all kind of from an, from an art. At one point, I just wanted to be an artist yeah. and until I went up to back in those days, this was the late seventies. I went to Soho in nice. New York, which was sort of this newly, newly named area where artists yeah. went. And I was just so turned off by the whole scene that I went, man, I don't know, this doesn't work for me. It just seems, what's the value of this, right? Whereas with movies, I thought, somebody pays to go to a movie, that's the value, I get it, you know? I guess I could have looked that way at a, a piece of art, but I didn't quite see it. And, but 
At one point, I ended up with a Bolex camera, a 16 millimeter wind up Bolex that had three lenses on it. Well, a wind up Bolex means there's no battery in it. You wind up the spring and it'll run a hundred feet of film. There's three lenses in the front. So you don't have to like bring in a lens and it's a um, uh, hundred feet of film. It's like about a minute or two. And I decided to, I, I had gotten a VCR. Uh, the, the reason that the Bolexes were available was because video cameras had just become portable. And all the news channels used to shoot on 16 millimeter Bolexes when they'd run out to the streets to see the accident or whatever. And of course, they'd have to have sound separate. It didn't, of course, record sound. Well, once once video cameras came in, there was no, um, it was like, get rid of these Bolexes. We don't have to go to the lab, yeah. right? So they were they were dumping them. So you could pick one up for nothing. They were worthless now. And so I got one. And then I decided to, a friend of mine who was kind of a poet in Northern California, unfortunately died. And I ended up with this short story he had written. And so I thought, well, and I had gotten a VCR. I, I, was, I was like an early adopter. So I bought a, a Betamax because that was the first one that was out. And back then, a Betamax, which is basically a VA, it's VHS and Betamax is like Apple and, and, um, and PC, uh, you know, Samsung yeah. or something. The better beta was all Betamax is always the best system of videotape or, or of quarter inch videotape. But the, um, but of course they licensed VHS to everybody. Sony invented both. They, they, but because they let anybody take VHS, they kept Betamax. Well, VHS outstripped it. Just like Apple is like beta in some ways better, but Android, anybody can write for yeah. it. You can do anything with Android. You can start your own Android machine, you know, your, your computer. But Apple, they've got to sell their own. That's kind of the way Sony was with beta. And they ended up losing out. The, um, but it is a better system. But I remember trying to buy a tape for it. And, the only, and you couldn't find any. And the first tape I ever bought, $80. I'm talking about the late 70s. So imagine what that's worth now. For all they had was porno. And it was a porno movie, but it was a, you know, back in the 70s, after, after Deep Throat, there was this idea that porno was going to be mainstream. And I know it's hard for people to imagine today because they have a different idea of what porno yeah. is or explicit sex in the movie. But they were trying to make real movies that had explicit penetrative sex, right? And so I remember the first one I bought was, um, I think it was called The Opening of Misty Beethoven. So 
this is a big budget porno movie with very explicit sex in it. Cost me $80. And I took it home and I got all my friends to come and we watched. It was like, look, look what I can put on my TV. <laughs> of course, the TVs were like 19 yeah. inch. You know, it's not like you had these five foot televisions, you know. But anyway, this was, and when I got that Betamax, I then got figured out that, you, oh, you could, you, you could buy a, a blank tape for 20 bucks, which is a lot of money back then, which would give you 90 minutes of blank tape. <laughs> and then you could record off the air because all television back then, it wasn't cable. You just had a antenna outside, yeah. right? And you, and at that time, I actually lived in a tobacco barn with my soon-to-be <sighs> wife at that time. And I strictly remember that when I was, it was Christmas, and she went, she was from North Carolina, and she went to see her parent, her family. And, um, and I, that was the first Christmas I ever spent totally alone, right? I, I didn't see anybody in that tobacco barn renovated tobacco barn it was quite comfortable and i recorded two movies on my betamax and one of them was the killing by stanley kubrick and the other was the spiral staircase dorothy dorothy malone it was the thriller and i watched those things and i could stop it and back it up and watch, and all for the first time, I could see that, oh, this is a shot, and this is a shot, and because I used to go to the movies, I thought the actors invented their own lines. <laughs> I didn't know how movies were yeah. made, right? I had no idea. You just, you didn't know, you don't know how it's done, and all of a sudden you can see how it's pieced together, and that's when I wrote. You know, self-portrait and brains based on the short story that my friend, that my friend Jeffrey Miller had written, and I thought I'm going to make a movie. That's what I'll do, you know. And so that led to eventually, you know, coming out to LA because I couldn't really do much back there. You know, I made a very bad movie, a very bad short movie. I thought it was wonderful. I, I put an ad in in the local paper for someone to help me make it. And a guy who graduated from the college, the university, Chapel Hill, said he would, he had just graduated from, at that time, it was the Department of um, Radio, Television, and Motion Pictures. Because <laughs> back then there weren't a lot of film yeah. schools. There was at USC, NYU, UCLA, Columbia maybe. But other than that, it was mostly radio and television and motion pictures would be a department. Of course, now everybody wants yeah. to be a, it's all film departments because, you know, universities are in the business of serving their customers and all the, all the customers want to be directors. You know, everybody wants to be a director now. And so they're selling it to them, even though it's like probably the worst investment of money you could make. <laughs> which is to go study being a director. But in any case, that's how I 
I got into, I got bitten by it. Once I, I did the short film, I went through the whole process because back then you had to go to a lab, you had to go to, you had to get a bunch of professionals to do things for you. And, and then I put it together and I put it on a VHS and I went to show my friends. I was so proud of it. And I, it was like a 20 minute short and I put it on. And for the first time, I realized it wasn't any good. Once I saw it with people who weren't involved, yeah. with it, I, it was like heartbreaking because they were all trying to say, that's really good. You know, they were, they were supportive. And yet I knew from just from watching it with them, I could tell it wasn't. And so like an idiot, instead of cutting and moving on and doing something new, I thought, well, I'll just make it into a feature. <laughs> I'll just throw good money after bad. It, that, I think that's like a character flaw, right? Yeah. When you throw good money, when you go, gee, I failed. Let me see if I can make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. No, no, stop and do something new. But I didn't. So I spent another God knows how long. I would write in the weekend. I would shoot. The next week I would edit. I went up to New York and I rented this flatbed editing system. But I just got swept up in the whole process. I got I I was I think a lot of people do. You know, you start, you you know, you get Final Cut Pro or you get After Effects and you get on your computer and you stay up all night making a beat or kind of doing a little editing something and you get it's a you know there's a it's kind of like gee if i could only make a living doing yes. it right it's like if you could just make a living doing it and that's the hard part but i had already of course seen that there was some advantage to working in the movies because I had seen a movie back in the 60s by Truffaut. You know, back then, the new wave, the Nouvelle Vague, the art movies were a genre, and they were the most important things happening. You know, it was Jules and Jim, and it was, you know, The Seventh Seal, and it was Bergman, and it was Fellini. And, and when I was, you know, in the 60s, that was it. That was like all the, all the important movies were these foreign art movies. And I was all in on that. I bought all into it and, and loved them, right? But I also loved my horror. But um, so I had seen um, Day for Night, which is a Truffaut movie, which is about, it shows you the behind the scenes of a movie being shot. You go, oh, I mean, today that's nothing to people because everybody knows how that's done. They go on YouTube. Yeah. It's just part of your DNA now. But it wasn't like that then. It was like, oh, well, you mean there's people that are like surrounding the yeah. actors and, you know, taking notes and have, have a, a boom mic. And you, you didn't. So I had seen that and I kind of go, oh, that's the way a movie's done. And I, in the mid 70s, I had gone to Columbia, the country, um, on vacation. I was a hippie with my girlfriend. And we went to Colombia uh, because one reason was there was this thing called Colombian gold, which was a very high quality, well, at that time, a high quality marijuana 
which of course today probably wouldn't hold up to anything, <laughs> you know. But um, but we went to Colombia. It was like a magical place to go, and we were in um, what's the name of the of the town that's right up on the Caribbean, Cartagena, and. And we were doing it on the cheap. We didn't have any money. We were backpacking and taking buses and trains. And we, we didn't have anything, right? But it was just we're crossing Colombia. And we were leaving Cartagena going to a town called Santa Marta, which is right on the right on the border with Venezuela. And it's on the beach. It's supposed to be a very nice town. And we were taking a bus with a bunch of Colombians, you know. And as we were going out of town, they were shooting a movie. It was a big movie, a big American movie. And I could tell from what I knew, hey, they're shooting a movie there, you know. That's that's a movie shoot. And when we got to Santa Marta, we went to what they call a pensione, which is a you get a you get a room with the breakfast, you know. And our room was so cheap, we didn't even have a window in it, right? You know, and, you know. And we went out to eat, and we went into a restaurant, open air, across from the beach. And the beach was right there. And we're eating, and all of a sudden, a couple of brand new Jeeps screech up, and these Beautiful people spill out. They've got sunglasses at night. The girls are gorgeous. They're all like, they push tables together and they're having, you know, bubbly and and just having a great time. And I'm sitting there with my girl and I'm looking, I think, I'm on vacation. They're from the, they're at work. They're the movie guys. And they're having a better time than I am. And I thought, I don't know, maybe the movies is a good business. If you can have a better time than other people have on vacation when you're working, you know. So that was certainly in the back yeah. of my mind when I when I decided to give a give a go at movies. And honestly, when I came out to LA, I just my big goal was. Hey, mate, I didn't know anything about the business except what I got in the magazines. And I thought, well, maybe I could make, if I could make a living making movies, I didn't think at all in terms of the quality or any artistic percent, none yeah. of that. It was just, I liked doing that. I liked writing and shooting and editing. And I didn't edit, my editor edited, you know? It wasn't like, it's not like I wanted, today, everybody wants to do everything, which is a, it's, you know, it's just really a um, sort of this uncomfortable event that has happened because of Bob Dylan, you know, you know back in the, um, in the 50s, they had this big folk revival, yeah. and everybody was doing, all the beatniks started doing folk music. And the idea was you would sing traditional songs. And a singer back then, Frank Sinatra, Elvis Presley, you name it, Loretta Lynn, you know, Tammy Wynette, 
they didn't, nobody expected them to write their yeah. songs. They're not songwriters. You know, the Crystals didn't write yeah. their songs. The Ronettes didn't write their songs. You know, they sang them, they performed them. But Bob Dylan came along and he started writing his own <laughs> song and he became the, the singer songwriter. And that became the great artistic thing. So now, of course, everybody who's a singer, who's a performer, has to be has to write their own stuff. Well, big, um, you know, don't want to give away the secret, but they really don't write their songs any more than they did in the '60s. It's just that it's like all the directors you see that have written their scripts. You know, you can put your name yeah. on it. <laughs> you know. And you, and you adapt it. Every director, every singer is going to mold the song to their own, you know, to what they, how they are going to do it. It's just that it, they didn't used to have to take credit for it and horn in on the royalties that the writers get, right? And there's a, you know, there's a rule in cinema, in the movie business, or at least in the union part of it, that a producer or director has to write at least 50% of a script to get credit, which also means get the yeah. money. Anybody else only has to write a third. Why is that? It's because a producer and a director have so much, have such a power position that they can, they can muscle their way in. And the same thing goes, of course, with singing. And, now, of course, with the modern version, you know, when I was in high school, I remember Time Magazine, which was a big deal back yeah. then, did, an, did a, um, a, a um, poll of college seniors about what is your great ambition in life? And the greatest ambition was to, like, write the great American novel. They all wanted to be novelists right? In 1966. Well, today they all want to be, maybe they all want to be directors of movies. They want to, and, and, but the movies they want to be directors of is the latest Marvel. Yeah. Movie. <laughs> you know, they want to do, do the great Marvel movies or they want to do Inception or, you know, everybody, but in a director now, people go to, people, you make a short film and all of a sudden you're an artist. You're, you're a great artist. Right. Which is kind of absurd because you haven't mastered any craft. Yeah. But it doesn't matter because on the contract, you're called the artist. And then they feel like you also have to you don't shouldn't just direct it. You should write it, you should direct it, you should shoot it, you should edit it and hopefully do the music, too. <laughs> yeah. Right. Then you're an artist. And so to a certain degree we end up with a lot of movies that maybe are a little more narrow in scope than they would be if you got the best people, you got your best collaborators to do it. So this, you know, I think with movies, you'll, you've always got to look at how they're made and what the business of it is to understand why they, you know, why they look the way they do, which isn't to say that some people aren't, really influential certainly 
the, uh, some of the movies that really influenced me were the Roger Corman, Edgar Allan Poe movies of the early 60s. You can't say those aren't Corman movies, yeah. you know. Or the William Castle movies of the 50s were big for me. The, the Tingler, The House on Haunted Hill, the, you know, Mr. Sardonicus, uh, 13 Ghosts. Of course, Rob White wrote them. You never hear about him, but those are good scripts, you know. But I think there's a te- we have a tendency to focus on an individual and elevate that that um, contribution, and and I, I think it's too bad. Not only because it diminishes the the cont- contributions of other people, but it tends to kind of egofy everything. Exactly. You know, everything has to be. You've got to have the biggest. You've got to be the guy. You've got to be the artiste. You know? No. So let's talk about some of your movies. Like we've been talking about other people's movies. So like just obviously like reanimator how did that come about because you you're a producer on that how did that movie come about in 85 well yeah i had i had um after i made my (laughs) i i would call it my student film self-portrait and braids which will never see the light of day if i have anything to do with it sort of like i don't know if you've i don't know if you've ever seen tarantino's first no I, parts of it are, are on YouTube, but he bought that thing up and got rid of it when he did Reservoir Dogs, you know. But and, and he's pretty good in it, actually. I mean, there is something good Not about cool. it. I mean, you, you can't you can't diminish his contribution to modern movies. But I had, um, you know, I tried selling Self Portrait and Brain, and I and after I made it. Uh, you know, I started reading the trades and stuff. This is back before fax machines, okay? You got to go wait, you know, for your listeners or your watchers, they can't imagine. It's like somebody saying, I remember the horse and buggy <laughs> days. You know what I, you got to go, really? I don't know. Did that really exist? Well, yeah, it did. Well, there was a time before fax machines. And, um, and before every, it, all the telephones were black, you know. <laughs> but I decided I wanted, I, I was really bitten by the bug. I, I loved the process of making movies and I really wanted to do it. And so I, and I thought, well, I need a good property. And I mean, this is kind of a digression, but I loved the Zap comics, the underground comics of the late 60s and early 70s. I don't know if you're, if you're familiar yeah. with them, but it's like the R. Crumb comics, the Zap, and you know, they were, they were the best stuff happening. And I loved an artist named Kim Deitch. And he did these black and white, very high contrasty kind of drawings, a bit crude, I mean, a bit stilted, but really great, weird, satirical kind of transgressive <laughs> stuff. And I actually found something I liked of his, and I actually went out to Berkeley to meet him and, and optioned the comics to make into a movie. I thought, well, that's what I'll do. And he was just breaking up with his girlfriend at that time. And so I said, why don't you come back to 
North Carolina with me. And you can, I had an art supply store back then. <laughs> Said, you can stay in my store and we'll do the script. <laughs> well, we didn't know what we were doing. And so he came and lived in my, in my store <laughs> and drew the script. That's how ignorant we were, right? So he did a complete, I can even show it. No, I don't have it. Right but I've got the whole, I've got the, um, the script was all done like stories. That's awesome. And um, then I was looking for a director. And I, and I thought, well, you know, I can't do, you know, where I was in, in North Carolina at that time, you couldn't get people to show up. I'm sure all of your listeners who have tried to make movies, they find out, you know, if you don't pay people, they don't show up. <laughs> You can't get the damn actor to come the next day, even though you really need them. Nobody will show up. They just don't take it seriously. And so I put an ad in Weekly Variety, just a little ad, like a one inch or something. And it said, horror movie director wanted. <laughs> and I got like hundreds of letters. And so I thought, well, I'm going to LA. They were all in LA. And I went and I would meet, I went to LA for a few days. I met six people a day. I just, all this is done by telephone and letters. And I still, I, you know, I got, kept in touch with some of them. And so then I got to know LA, which, you know, the only person I knew in the movie business back in North Carolina, this old codger would say, you know, you know, Hollywood, hookers and thieves, hookers and thieves. <laughs> I don't know, maybe he's right. <laughs> but anyway, but I didn't find that. I went out and I found that people just like me. I was in my early, I was like 30 years old or something. And I thought, you know, wow, everybody that's here is like from all over the world. They just want to make movies. They can't do it where they are. Of course, today you yeah. can. It's different now. But, and so I had a different, a different experience of it. But long story short, I ended up meeting Stuart Gordon in Chicago through that kind of process. At, through, and, um, and he... Um, was a, a successful theater director. He had been directing, he was the creative director of the organic theater in Chicago for like 10 years before I met him. So he was a professional director. He just hadn't done movie or TV. And he had the idea of doing Reanimator. He already had a script, like a pilot wow. for a TV show. And I went and saw his plays and, and we taught, and he was a horror. Yeah, well, he seemed to like horror. Although his writing partner, Dennis Paoli, told me recently, he said, you know, Stuart and I, we could do anything, but you wanted to do horror. So we did horror. And of course, Reanimator was so successful that then, then you're stuck. You're right in it. Well, for me, it wasn't being stuck because that's all I really wanted to yeah. But I think for Dennis and Stewart, they had a lot of other stuff they wanted to do. And they kind of got stuck because it was successful. 
if it hadn't been successful, they could have done all the other stuff that they love to do. So then from there, just because I don't want to take up all your time, but I just have some questions about a bunch of the different movies. So obviously, like you said, successful. And then right next, the next year, you reunite Jeffrey and Barbara for From Beyond, and you wrote that and produced that one. Yeah, well, what, after after Reanimator, I won't go into the dirty details of it. There's a lot of uncomfortable <laughs> stories about that. Um, I was dealing with Empire Pictures, Charlie Band and his father, Albert Band, and his brother, Rick Band. And um, Charlie was somebody who, I just loved what he was doing. He just started Empire. But he grew, his father was a director and they had grown up in Italy. And of course I grew up in Latin America. So I think there was a certain amount of, of um, simpatico that goes from kids who are br- brought up as expats. Yeah. You know, if, if, if people who are brought up outside of their country have a, a certain kind of, there's a certain kind of homelessness that goes with that. And Charlie had, his father was already making movies. You know, Charlie actually played Steve Reeves' son in the, I think it was called The Forbidden World, Hercules in the Forbidden World or something. You know, Steve Reeves was Hercules. <laughs> you know, Charlie actually, when his dad directed it. And, you know, so Charlie was and is a real kind of go-getter entrepreneur. Um, and he was making these kind of Roger Corman kind of movies. I loved it. I, I met his father first and went, oh, I loved it. So I got involved with him. And, but unfortunately he was a bit ethically challenged and there were, we had some legal problems yeah. for, uh, eventually, but but with Reanimator, uh, he was going to distribute it. And once the movie was done, and actually, we show, I think the first showing was during the Cannes Film Festival, which was really for us the Cannes Film Market. Um, we had a midnight screening at the Star Theater. And it was such a success. It was like crazy. I thought, wow, a movie. Business. This is cool, you know. <laughs> So then we did the, back then the idea was you're supposed to go to the big, the most expensive bar in town, you know, at the Majestic Hotel. And we signed a deal on a, on a napkin at the bar. You know, this was, this was like the zeitgeist for three movies. And um, the first one was Dolls, which was a movie that Charlie had already been developing with Ed Naha. And um, it was kind of a Hansel and Gretel story. And then the second one was going to be kind of a follow-up to Reanimator, which would be another Lovecraft movie. And then we were going to do Robot Jock. And um, Stuart was going to direct them, and I was going to produce them. And when we, we went to Rome, and Charlie had bought a studio there, the old Dino De Laurentiis studios, which were all run down, but they were huge stages. And we built one big set for 
for dolls, which was supposed to take place in the UK. Old house where, you know, the typical thing, you cup some a family, the storm, you know, it's old dark house, right? The storm stops them from driving. They go to the old dark house and there's a puppet master there. And of course we cast Guy Rolf because he was Mr. Sardonicus in, um, in the, um, you know, the old um, William Caston. <laughs> That's great. And it's like full circle, something you so, enjoyed. So it was, you could cast him in that. Of course, but that's that's how we yeah. do it, right? That's how everybody does it. You you find you you go to your I'm not I'm not going to say heroes, but your touchstones, yeah. your your touchstones, you know. And you go, I remember when we were when we were casting, we went to London to cast, and when Guy Rolf came, and it was like Stuart and I were like, "That's Mr. Sardine." <laughs> you know? That's cool. <laughs> My God. That's Mr. Sardon. And but anyway, we did that movie. And before we edited it, we did that movie before Christmas. And then after Christmas, we changed over the set to make it take be in Massachusetts. And we shot from beyond on it. And so we had we were we I I had thought, I can't speak for Stuart, but I think I could in this case. I never thought that we would do a sequel necessarily to Reanimator. I thought the sequel to Reanimator would be a, another love yeah. movie. I didn't understand then that sequels are really just the celebration of the first movie. You know, I always thought when they did the sequel to Psycho, I was hugely disappointed when Norman Bates was in. Yeah. Because I thought, no, what you already told that one. Let's do another Psycho. Psycho 2, this is going to be a new story. But I didn't understand then that that's really not how it worked. But anyway, we I had gone to, um, you know, looking up all the all these Lovecraft stories and came up with two that I thought would make a good follow-up to Reanimator. One of them was Dreams in the Witch House. And the other was Shadow Over Innsmouth. Ultimately, we chose Shadow Over Innsmouth because it had the machine in it. So there was this resonator in it, which kind of gave you this sci-fi edge, which kind of opens up the audience. So you, you, it's kind of a broader audience when you put a machine in the middle of yeah. something, right? It's not, and Dreams in the Witch House was all witchcraft and, you know. So anyway, we went with, with um, From Beyond and, and of course we, you know, I wrote the first kind of pages and pretty much used up the whole story of, um, of that Lovecraft wrote before the title. <laughs> <laughs> so if you read the story of, from beyond, you'll see that once the tight, once the main credits come on, we've already told them. That. <laughs> That's great. It's done, you know. And so we just had to make up everything else. And so of course we had to, you know, sucking brains out through an eye socket and 
I don't know, you know, just the typical, you know, kind of all this horror yeah. stuff. And, um, and that was our, you know, that was our second Lovecraft movie. I think the third one was Dagon. Oh, okay. Which at that time I had, during From Beyond, I had contracted Dennis Paoli to write a script for Shadow Over Innsmouth. And, and Shadow Over Innsmouth is the fish people Lovecraft story. One of, I think maybe one of his, arguably one of his best novellas really holds together. But I didn't like the title because I thought it was too vague. And so there's another short story by Lovecraft called Dagon, which is about the God. It's not even much of a story, but it's really this ancient being, God type being that is really at the base of Shadow of Rinsman. And so I called it Dagon because I thought that was a good horror movie name. And I did, I thought Shadow of Rinsman was a little, a little too artistic yeah. or something. But Dagon, we shot in Spain. And I think actually like in 2004 or something, and I think that that is actually, I think it's maybe the best, most true adaptation of a Lovecraft story to a movie that there is. I'm going to check it out. Gonna, I went through, I try to watch as much as I can. So the ones behind me I watch, and I just interviewed Kathleen Kinmont. So we talked Bride of Free oh, Animator. Right. Really? Yeah, so we'll talk really? about that one second. What did she say? Well, what did she say about it? I want to know. She, I haven't seen her in 20 years. <laughs> so she just had a book come out. So we were talking about that's how I sort of got her, but no, she, she talked about how just the experience, but the one thing I, that she was kind of like foggy, like memory wise was just that how it all came about that she was chosen for that role. Obviously you guys liked her enough and said, you fit Gloria you're our Gloria, but what did, what were you looking for in that role when you were casting? I think it was, I th well, first of all, she had to be tall yes, and she is tall. Yeah. <laughs> Let's be serious. And why? Because there is a lot of Bride of Frankenstein. Oh yeah. You want, you want, you're, you're putting body parts together. It's probably going to be bigger than normal, but she also had to be able to play the the sick the dying girl the, the, you've got to care for her it, it, there's very little time you get it but it's real important at the beginning that you feel for yeah. her and i know we had i think there were two or three candidates one was a was a was a black woman that i really thought was kind of interesting but you know, Kathleen, I think she just, I think she had the pathos. I think I, I you feel for her. I did. Yeah. I, I just felt for her. And unfortunately, I was, I think I was not confident enough in that character that, and maybe it was just being too much influenced by Bride of Frankenstein that she only shows, she shows up at the beginning and then in the third yeah. act, right? Climax. 
And when the movie was over, when it was all over, and she's the heart of the movie. I mean, as far as your emotions go, I don't think you, I, nobody comes close to how you feel about that character, about her character. I mean, she is, you know, you feel for her at the beginning when she's sick and when she's being rejected by, by Dan. I, I mean, it's very emotional to me, you know. So actually, after that movie, when I finally, when it was over, I thought, you know, I should have done more. She should have had a bigger part in the movie, you know, because she's the best character of everybody. She's the one that gets my attention. And she's got such a, she just shows up at the beginning and the end. And so that's a little bit why Return of Living Dead 3, I took that character and made the whole movie. Yeah. No, but I, I know what you mean, but I think sometimes it can be like too much. So it's sometimes it's perfect when you don't see it as much. But the one thing that she told me was just, I think it's so fascinating how much she had to be, how much had to be put on her. Like how much. Amazing. That's a full body yeah. suit except for her face, which is makeup. Yeah. Big time body suit. I mean, this is a big that's a you don't get much bigger makeup. Than yeah. That. She's talking about straw, like breathing through a straw, straws in her nose, but she, oh. she loved it. It was like such an amazing experience. Now she had great things to say about that. But one thing I have to talk about, because I rewatched this movie that seems like one of those movies I watch like every few years. And it was one of those like video store rentals because the poster just like makes you think like, what is this society? Yeah, that poster is kind of weird. It looks like an art movie, doesn't it? it? No, that's what I mean. And you just don't know what it, it looks could like, be. What is this? A European yes. art movie? <laughs> but but the the Aero video collectors release, that's a great I saw I, I saw that one online. I chose this one because that's the one I remember, but I saw no, no, well, this is the original. Yeah. This is you know, this was made for the UK. Society, the right to U.S. and U.K. were bought by this company called Medusa Entertainment. Perfect name. <laughs> and they're based in London. And so they took the movie and they did a big push in London. And it was actually a success. They did a lot of promotion. It was a, it was a theatrical success. They didn't release it in the U.S. for years. Yeah, I think four years, right? Because they're not here. Four years it took for it to come out? Yeah, and then when it came here, they shipped us some prints from the UK for the release here. And honest to God, the NPAA had cuts made to it, and I did those cuts in my garage to the actual prints. <laughs> and I thought, man, I've really hit the stick. I, I'm, I'm cutting out clips that nobody's going to see because the MPAA said so for this minor release in the U.S. <laughs> but that's why, and, and it was a, it was nothing here. Even my friends didn't like it much. Really? And, um, and it got terrible reviews and stuff. And I really felt bad about it because I thought that it was going to, I really believed when I was shooting it 
that it was going to be number one in the box office. I, I thought, how could somebody not love this? Well, I love it. <laughs> just goes to show, just goes to show how daft we get when we do kind of creative things. But I have to say now, like talking to you about like your 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 being an artist and your love of art, like the final act in this movie is like I don't know. I guess it was your like I don't know how you found Screaming Mad George if that was the first time that you worked with him, but that final act, yeah, everything in it is just it's a masterpiece. I love it. Well, it's it's odd because the inspiration for that scene, because I I tried to look and see why why have I done things the way I have in the movies? Because everything comes from somewhere. And I think a couple of the, I mean, with George, we just looked at a bunch of Dolly paintings and we picked them. The idea, uh, but from my point of view, there's probably, I mean, a few movies that maybe stand out as influences, and these may be surprising. One of them is um, is Doctor X from the 1930s. I write that down with Fay Ray. Um, they had this synthetic skin. The only shots in the movies that were in color were were. This doctor has made this synthetic skin where this skin kind of melds into each other. So I think that was, I kind of think that was back there because when I got the script for Society, it was just somebody who came to my office and said, hey, read this script, here you go. And I had been working with Dan O'Bannon, who directed Return of the Living Dead, for like nine months. Every night I would go to his house and we were working on a, on a script called The Men, which was about a, man, a woman who discovers that all men are aliens. And it was really paranoid and crazy and fun. So, but then Dan pulled out at the last minute when I got the financing and I was full of this paranoia so when Rick Fry and Woody Keith gave me their script, I started reading and I went, wow, this is the same paranoid world I've been living in for almost a year. It's just that it has to do with class, not, not sexual orientation. And, and, but it didn't have anything fantastic. Didn't have a monster, um, you know, like a physical monster. It didn't have any fantastic elements. So, that didn't work for me because I'm kind of a guy that likes the weird yeah. stuff. I don't want to. Th- and in their script, it was a blood cult. And so what I, so I looked at it and I told them, listen, I got it approved. I had a deal to make a couple of movies and Bride of Reanimator would be the second one. Cause I figured I'd never directed. I could be a total failure because I have the rights to the reanimator sequel. I went to a friend of mine who was, they were making movies, they were doing their own company. And I said, listen, let's do reanimator sequel. I got the rights and it'll be a big boost for your company, but I want to direct 
and I want to direct two movies because my I had a French distributor friend who once told me that you know most directors with their first movie they make two movies in one their first and their last <laughs> and I thought you know I'm ignorant I've never taken a film class the only reason I know anything about movies because I've been a producer and a producer doesn't have to know anything. I've only learned from watching other people. So maybe I make the first movie and it's a disaster and I've made my first and last as a director. So I went to my friend and I said, listen, I'll do a two picture deal with you. They were financed by Japanese money back then. And I said, I'll do the sequel to Reanimator. But that'll be the second movie. That's great. So I'll do another one first. So if it's a disaster, I still got another chance. You know, I can I can learn. You know, I'm you know I'm like a rat in a maze. I only bump my nose so many times. So that was why I did. I had the two movies with them, and so when I got the script, I went, "Wow, I love this!" But I want something weird in. And then the Japanese investors said they wanted me to meet with Screaming Mad George, who's Japanese, because that would help. It would be good for them for selling. There'd be a Japanese element to it. And um, so I went to meet him. But when I met him, it was like when I met Stuart Gordon. It was I was. It was like wow. I get it, you know, we're right in the, with, with Stuart, it was horror. With George, he's a surrealist artist and I've always been into surrealism and into, um, into expressionism. And uh, for example, with From Beyond, the first poster I had made was based on a Dali painting because I'm into yeah. that. I'm into that kind of stuff, you know. And so when I met George, we went to his place and he had all these, all these like optical illusion paintings and these, what we call, um, you know, you know, when you see like a face in the clouds or in the trees, you know, simulacrum. And this, I, this kind of part of the mind where things, become, you know, they go from one thing to another. And so we got along amazingly. We immediately looked at a bunch of Dali. We immediately started designing this idea. And I had thought when I read the script, I thought, well, I love it, but I don't like the I don't I, I don't like that there's no fantastic element. I want uh, what would I like to see? And like you said, one of your formative movies was Nightmare on Elm Street, which is a very a good one to have as, as a as a basis, I think, because it's definitely really great. Um, and I thought about, and remember, it had surrealism. Yeah. When the tongue comes out of the phone, I mean, come <laughs> on, you know. I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy. Yeah. Right. That's entertainment, and it had the macabre, and it had horror, and it had it was disturbing, and but it was still just a teenage movie, like. Halloween or something. So, but anyway, I thought that um, I thought at that time, you know, you had 
Nightmare on Elm Street, and the sequels sometimes were just showcases for these LA, these Hollywood-based rubber effects guys. So all these rubber effects guys were seeing what they could do with these methacellulose and all these new plastics. And so I remember, you know, like George, that he was in one of the Nightmare on, on Elm Street. Yeah, part four. Steve Johnson. And, and he Nick did Benson? the like, yeah, he did the like um, Roach Hotel, yeah. right? Nick Benson. And who works still works with I'm still in touch. Oh, that's great. And who's in Vegas now. But it was like you went sometimes, I mean, the first nightmare on Elm Street is like a a really classic horror movie, I think. The second, the third, when Craven came back, kind of really sort of solidified the um, I don't know, the format. And it became like nightmare. It became like Friday the 13th. It was like, you're going to crank these yeah. out. Whereas in Nightmare on Elm Street, it was what can the effects guys do? And so we were all about, and with Nightmare on, with um, The Howling and American Werewolf, the, the, what I call the rubber guys, which were basically guys from all over the country, a lot of them from New Jersey, <laughs> in Hollywood, in these effect shops. And you would, go, you would go to these effect shops. They'd all be wearing black shirts with like ACDC or something kind of, some heavy metal kind of image on it. And there would be hard rock, um, they'd have big sound systems. And these guys only, I, I would go there and I think they only have two possible directions in their life. There's only two, two paths. Either they're going to be heavy metal stars or they're going to they're gonna make monsters for movies. And I'm with the monsters for movies yeah. guys. You know, this is, I mean, it's a, it was at that time in the 80s, I always thought somebody should write a book called Invasion of the Rubber Guy yeah. in Hollywood, you know, because they created all this stuff. Of course, it began with like Dick Smith and Tom Savini and, you know, and Baker you know, they, influenced him. And the then, the yeah. great guys, you know. Yeah. But there's a ton of, there were a bunch of them and they're still around, but now they're, I don't know, almost grandfathers. And it's not going to happen again because it's all digital now. You're not going to have that. But in the 80s, they were, you know, you'd go to movies just to see what these guys would yeah. come up with, you know. And I, I thought that and when I was thinking about the script of society, I thought, well, I want a fantastic element. But what haven't I seen that I want to see? And I imagined flesh melding into flesh. And I thought, that's what I want to see. And I went to the writers, Woody, Woody Keith and Rick Fry, and because they used to come to my house late at night after my kids were asleep and we'd talk about it, and work on it. And I said, listen, I want to see this melding thing. And we just kind of developed it into this idea of the shunting 
and tried to, and I just tried to extrapolate from their script because actually the um, society, the script is, it's really about Woody Keith, the writer. In a surrealist world, it was his upbringing in Beverly Hills. And so he, but it's, yeah, it's crazy. It's way out there. It's extreme. But he's he's a creative guy, you know. He's a real, you know, out there kind of. He just has a new movie out, by the way. He produced and, and wrote a movie called Girl Next. Girl Next, which is outright Girl Next, and it's out. I think it's on streaming right now, and I think he's doing three of them. Oh, cool. He lives in Santa Fe now, so he's a real talent. This guy, you know, Woody Keith, and then I then I. Um, collaborated with him and Rick and George also on um, Silent Night, Deadly Night yeah. or um, Initiation, which is really I weird. just watched it today. With those and it was strictly those it's just strictly those guys. I mean this is a cheap failure of a movie with really a weird ambition, which is strictly Based, you you just got to look at Woody Keith, Shrewd George, and me, <laughs> and you've got this kind of bizarre, kind of unformed fetus of a movie. <laughs> then we also did um, Bride of Reanimator, and at that time, of course, George didn't do all the effects. I had many effects companies. Um, and but Woody and Rick and I made the script, you know. So those are the movies that really were part of of that collaboration, yeah. which has its its ups and downs, <laughs> you know. But but I would say that the shunting at the end was about George and myself um, finding a way to express through Dali esque imagery, this idea of melding, the story, we had to make a narrative out of it. I mean, I'm all about starting with inspiration and then back engineering the narrative, right? So I go for like, what do you want to see? How can we make that happen? We'll go back until we can make that happen. Woody's script was already about incest and class. You know, uh, I tried to bring it out. I, I just tried to bring it, make it more clear, add scenes that made it much more clear. And um, and so that's, you know, and then the other thing is the ending, the whole shunting ending, I have definitely linked back to, you know, I have this, feeling that a movie should end in some huge crazy kind of you know orgiastic event right i don't know you know you go why do you want that why would you want that well when i was a kid watching you know ray harryhausen and william castle and you know the um, creature with the atom brain and all that kind of stuff. I also saw a really big movie at that time, which is called The Ten Commandments. 
And it was a horror movie to me because they were turning water into blood, <laughs> they stick into a snake. It was a green mist that went through the town killing little children. The sea opened up, you know, it was, and then when Moses went up onto Mount Sinai to speak with the, the burning bush, um, back down below all the Israelites started worshiping the golden calf and having this, this orgy. And now back then in the 50s, they made movies for everybody. So they couldn't show anything explicit like they would now. But the point still got across. And it really affected me. It was so disturbingly sexual. And so I think that's why in a lot of my movies, I keep wanting the ending to be like some weird disturbing origin <laughs> but i think that's what's great about your movies like sometimes <laughs> movies like you know you have the the way a story structure is you have the the climax and then when it goes down it's usually really like melodramatic at the end but there's a few of years that man just like the end of the end of uh society which i love every i saw a really cool photo of you with uh mr butthead the billy's dad <laughs> <laughs> That's Chip. That's that's Chip Lucia, who I just was in touch with. Oh, really? And I was trying to tell him how famous he is as being the butthead. I said, "You are the butthead." You know, the thing is about the people who made that movie. That movie was a big flop when it came out here, right? It only it was it was a it was a, a real movie in in England. It was. A success, right? But we wouldn't know that. This is pre. This is way pre-internet yeah. days. You don't know what's going on overseas. I had somebody in Italy send me their dissertation, their college, their university dissertation about society. They did a whole dissertation on a B movie, right? Spain. It was a big movie. France, it was a movie, but in the U.S., well, I think, I mean, it's a bit crudely directed. I get that. You know, it's a bit, there's, there's cringeworthy places, <laughs> you know. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of originality that kind of makes up for it. And in Europe, it's more, in, in England, it makes sense because they totally get the class yeah. thing. In the, when I made this movie, it was the Reagan era. And of course, your listeners don't even know that part of our history. But Ronald Reagan, that era began this idea that they called greed is good. It was the idea that, you know what, if we just give rich people a ton of money, everybody's going to do Trickle better down. Yeah. Right. They'll figure it out. Right. But there was this idea that all you needed to be that greedy was good. That it was good to be rich. Wall street, you know, it was like a whole thing. So in this country, we've always had this idea, this myth about how 
um, if you just work hard, you're gonna you're gonna be rich. That there's no class here. That it's just hard work, which is of course pretty much bullshit. <laughs> um, but we believe that, right? Until the Great Recession, until 2008, when it turns out there was a whole generation coming out of college and they found out, hey, there's no place for us. You know, and nobody's taking care of us and we're not going to do better than our parents and all this kind of thing. Well, I think, and that happens to coincide with the, with the sort of discovery of society <laughs> by a younger generation. Because until then, it was locked. Honest, I didn't, I was the director of society. I didn't produce it. I didn't own it. I own Reanimator, you know. I didn't own society. But in the early 2000s, the guy who did called me and said, hey, you want to buy it? Because I think you're the only one that would care. And I said, yeah, I do, because I do care. I wish I owned every movie I ever made because I would keep getting them. You can keep getting it out there. The problem with these movies is nobody, you know, the big companies like from beyond, when are you going to see it? You know, MGM owns yeah. it. They're not going to push it. You know, the dentist, who's pushing the dentist? That's a good I movie. I, I've done a lot of movies and a lot of them, it's not because we didn't try, but they didn't quite work. Yeah. Right. So you put effort into every one. Some of them kind of click. You want them all to. But if a big company owns it, there's no, there's nothing in it for them. But if you own it, you can keep getting it out there, you know. And with society, I did buy it. And then I was able to like find people to put it out. But I noticed in the late 2000s that, um, that all of a sudden people wanted to show it. People wanted to see the movie. They wanted to put it at a festival. They wanted to do a screening. And I'm going, wow, this is from out of nowhere, right? And then of course, Arrow put out that great collector's item with some artwork on it. When you look at it, like you look at the artwork you've got behind you, uh, behind your left yeah. shoulder, and you kind of go, this is like a European art <laughs> yeah. movie, right? You go, what is this? She's not gonna pull her face off. That's not going to happen in the movie. But when Arrow put out their box, it was like way worse than that. Not only that, I thought, wow, in the in the sequel or remake, that's what the shunning's looking like. <laughs> I get it, you know. <laughs> but anyway, there was a, I think there was a a change. You know, the thing about society, the thing that was exciting about it to me was that I felt like I had a chance to create a new monster. You know, when you think of horror movies, you kind of never get to do a new monster. I mean, I think Freddy was a new monster. Yeah. Right? I think in Halloween, um, that's, a, that's a new kind of monster. Yeah, that kind of, he's not, he's not Norman Bates. Norman Bates is maybe the first slasher, but the, um, you know, Halloween was different. It was kind of, kind of the boogeyman. Um, Friday the 13th is basically Halloween with a story behind yeah. it. 
you know. But Freddy, that's kind of a new monster, right? But how you've got vampires, werewolves, living yeah. dead, the, you know, everything's all the wolf man, the it's always it's the same, you know. But the idea that you could do a new yeah. monster, that's tough. I mean, you can't do it just because you want to. You've got to and this was an opportunity plus you've got to understand that I came of age during the late sixties, the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement, uh, the, the country was exploding. It, Paul, it, I, it, there was marches, hundreds of thousands of people marched on Washington. I was there and colleges shut down. I think it was 1968 or 69, 68. I remember Every college shut down early because people were marching. Wow. It was, it was, everything was politics. It was the revolution was coming. But you were 19, 20 years old. It was a hell of a lot of fun <laughs> because whatever's happening when you're 20 years old is fun as shit. Yeah. Right? It's like, this is life, you know? So for me, it was also like, hey, this is politics. I can kind of sneak in this fun politics without taking it real. I mean, it wasn't, it's not message first. We're not talking get out here. We're not, you know, the modern horror movies, sometimes they're just kind of tedious to me because they're all about the message. Yeah. It's kind of like, oh yeah, it's a word. Well, you know, what's important is they're really talking about the, you know, some important political or social issue. And you kind of go, well, any movie you make is going to reflect the times in which you live. But when you make that the main thing, it just means that you really don't like horror movies. Yeah. What you what you want is a vehicle to be important. And that's I think that's why George Romero's Living Dead movies sort of just kind of petered out because the first one was just a great horror yeah. movie. The the Night of the Living Dead to me is the beginning of the modern era of horror. If you want to make a, a signpost, that's the one that changed everything. And when he made, you know, the Dawn of the Dead, what what is? Can you think of a better tagline that than when hell is full, the dead will walk the earth? That's I mean. That's the movie I want to see. I don't want to see 28 days later, they put some monkey virus into people to run around <laughs> and see living dead. It, you know, all of a sudden, the living dead went from being macabre to being, oh, it's a um, social problem. It's, uh, it's a, um, it's a yeah. virus. Think of Evil Dead, 1985, isn't it? Evil yeah. Dead, how macabre that is. What a crazy, scary, hilarious horror movie it is. It's two, the year 2000 corollary, Cabin Fever. Same thing, bunch of kids go to a cabin in the woods for a holiday, <laughs> of course, on Evil Dead, you go, why the hell would anybody go to that piece of shit cabin? 
you know, except to smoke a bunch of pot. Yeah. I don't know. They don't have anywhere else to go. In cabin fever, they go to a cabin on a lake and you go, yeah, I could, that sounds like a good vacation, <laughs> you know. But what's the evil? Their friend is sick and could get them yeah. sick, so they got to kill him. Yeah. How much fun is that? <laughs> I don't know. Not, not much. Doesn't thrill me, I must say. I'm not saying it's a bad movie. I'm just saying in, when you look at, if you look at the kind of theme park, the kind of thrilling movies that I grew up with, it's a bit pedestrian. Or, or not in the filmmaking. I think Eli Roth did a good job with that. Yeah. You know, it's just that the whole, you know, 28 Days Later is, is a, I think it's a very good movie, but when you see it in the in the timeline that leads to The Walking Dead, which is basically soap opera. It is a soap opera. You can kill people. And it'll never end. AMC loves you know, it so much. Well, what happened to the sense of the macabre? Well, one thing that happened was that after Dawn of the Dead, which, you know, Dario Argento was very much involved with. Uh, the, even more than Night of the Living oh, Dead. Oh, wow. Because Night of the Living Dead had a couple of, had a, you remember, on Night of the Living Dead, they never said how the dead came back to life. They said maybe it was because a satellite yeah. came down. We don't know, right? But who cares? We're in a house, and they're coming <laughs> after us, so they're going to eat us. The, and the black guy ends up surviving, right? Even though the white racist was absolutely correct that they should have gone to the basement. He told them, we should go to the basement. Who said no? The black guy, the hero. Yeah. At the end, how does he survive? He goes <laughs> to the basement, right? But when the sheriff comes, they think he's a zombie and they kill him. Well, even when I first saw it, the fact that he was a black actor was an important issue at that. I mean, you, you reckon you got it. You, you identified that. And the fact that he got killed and he was black, it kind of made you feel like, yeah, the black guy survives and then he gets killed. That there's something there. And then afterwards, when the sheriff, this is Tom Savini, right? Tom Savini created that Vietnam horror, right? And Savini, I think it was his satire where he made these redneck, I don't know whether Philadelphia, Pittsburgh. He's from Pittsburgh. Uh, I think he's from Pittsburgh or Philly, yeah. Yeah, well, George Romero was Pittsburgh. It was shot in Pittsburgh. So, of course, it takes place in Pittsburgh, right? outside of Pittsburgh and you have the same kind of rednecks you would have in Georgia or Mississippi or, or Wyoming or wherever <laughs> these guys with guns and they're going to see the living dead and they're popping them like it's a sport which for the first time you look at and you go I buy that <laughs> I think that's what they would do and that's a social commentary right it's a it's a satire that really 
kind of enriches the whole horror movie. On Dawn of the Dead, he put it in a shopping mall, and now you had people, <laughs> it looked like a big satire. And I think the satire got a little more in your face. But it still had super horror scenes. The opening scene of Dawn of the Dead, when they go to the basement and the priest is trying to keep the... Uh, it's real. I mean, that's real horror. It's, that's that's the good stuff. But by the time he got to Day of the Dead, I think too many people had asked him about his political <laughs> and cultural statements. And, you know, it was just... It was like message first, except for the Tom Savini scene yeah. where the head would get cut off and roll in front of the camera. That's I think that's Savini, you know? You you can't I don't think you can separate Savini from um, Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead. I mean this guy had a great deal of of um, of influence in those movies. But George Romero he just never got, a, he, I think he just, it, you know, I had a, I remember I had a dinner with a couple of French critics way back when in the nineties. And they told at a festival somewhere in Europe. And they said, you know, one of the things we like to do to kind of mess around with, with horror directors. I said, what? They said, well, we'll just, we'll just kind of get real serious when we're interviewing say, do you consider yourself a political director? And all of a sudden, they're like, yeah, well, I do have very important ideas. And that's the worst thing you can do to somebody is act like they're, they're important. <laughs> and all of a sudden, kind of really ordinary insights become very important. And that's one of the problems, I think, a lot of filmmakers in general, or celebrities in general, yeah. is that they start thinking that their opinions are somehow insightful <laughs> and more, and kind of more, they have more insight than people who actually are maybe in those fields. Yes, or, exactly. <laughs> you know. So I think that's one of the, I, I find that to be a problem with, 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 Oh, I agree. Today, sometimes I feel like it's too. People take themselves too seriously. They should focus more on doing what Stuart Gordon did, which just make a damn good entertainment. <laughs> That's all, and the rest of it will look after itself. So, Brian, this has been awesome. I just have two questions I have to ask, and I loved hearing your story. This has been so much fun. So one thing we talked about, and I love when like these moments happen when I talk to people, you talk about John Houston, their criterion, and you're like, wow, Annie is on there. So with you, honey, I shrunk the kids. <laughs> Did you write that at, was that story supposed to be a horror? Yeah, well, Stuart, no, Stuart, yeah. Stuart and I were having a barbecue in my backyard and, um, Stuart said, and we both had kids. We're both family guys. I got four kids. He's got three kids. All our kids were there. And he said, you know what? We should make a movie for our kids. Reanimator from beyond. That's not for kids. Or actually just Reanimator at that time. <laughs> and, um, and I said, 
that I said, I always had this, when I was a kid, I used to lie down in the grass with little figures, like little soldiers or something. And I used to imagine what a, what an incredible landscape it was to see the grass, to be in the grass, to see the roots of the trees, see the insects. And I, and I said, I think that would be a great kids movie, you know, to be real small and see this. And Stuart said, yeah, that's a good idea. The kids get shrunk by their dad, who's an inventor. And we kind of talked about it. And then Stuart, because he was a, we were in Rome shooting dolls and from beyond. And he had a good, he had a big time agent because, or an up and coming agent, because he had a career as a theatrical director. And some of the actors from his theater were already in Hollywood. So he got us a pitch meeting at Disney because when we talked about the story, we said, oh, this should be a Disney movie like Flubber or, you know, with the, the Shaggy Dog and, and the, you know, the movies we saw in the 50s with Fred McMurray should put Fred McMurray in. And we, it should be a Disney movie. And we called it the Teeny Weenies. And, um, and so he got the pitch meeting for us at Disney. And um, so we flew back from Rome to LA for this meeting. And in the back of the plane, back then we went on Alitalia and there was some, there was some um, kind of terrorist stuff going on in Italy at that time in Rome. So Alitalia had almost nobody. So the plane was almost empty. And we sat in the back and Stuart got out his yellow pad and we just sort of came up with the story for our pitch meeting, which on a digression, when we got to my house, I had a guy watching my house, staying in it. And he had locked it up and he was gone for the weekend. And when Stuart and I got to my house, I tried to get in and the alarm went off. And Stuart said, let's get out of here. <laughs> and I said, I live here. I can't, we can't go anywhere. And so the, I crawled in a window and then the cops came and wanted to like put us at gunpoint and search the house because I didn't know the code words, right? <laughs> so anyway, that's the kind of people we were, right? The cops are yeah. coming, get out of here. You know? <laughs> Stuart's a Chicago guy. He's a downtown guy. People don't get that about him. <laughs> When I first met him, he wore a leather jacket. He was like a Chicago guy. And, but anyway, we did our meeting and boom, it just started moving along. And we got, we ended up with a meeting with Jeffrey Katzenberg. And then we had lunch with him at the executive dining room where he told us that, you know, we want to do this movie, but, um, we're going to have to change the title. Teeny Weeny sounds like a low budget porn movie. And so they came up with a new title, which was, of course, much better. <laughs> and um, we developed the whole movie. My kids were the test kids for writing the ant on the 
on our test footage. We did everything. We cast it. We, we, I moved to Mexico. The whole thing was shot in Mexico. And unfortunately, right before we were going to shoot, um, Stuart had some health problems and had to leave the production. And then, of course, once they brought in Joe Johnston, he had his own producer. So I was kind of ah. moved aside from that. But we designed the whole movie. We did all the storyboards. You know, we did the, you know, it was, I would say the movie's 80% of what we, what we designed. Wow. But remember, just think about this. Teeny weenies with darker lighting and a bad ending. It's a horror movie. Horror and fantasy are two sides of the same coin. You can take any horror movie and lighten it up to be a, a family movie. You can take any fantasy movie and if you kind of darken it and twist it, it's a horror movie. So it's not that big of a stretch, actually. If you think yeah. about it, it really isn't. It's frightening. That's why I thought of that. I was like, it's kind of frightening, like, you know, shrinking your kids and then they're riding ants and uh, almost getting stepped on. So that's fascinating. Now, do they call you? Do they have to reach out to you for all these, like the sequels that they made, the TV series? No, no, no. What they, All they have to do is pay Good. Me. And I must say, I must say that the Disney at that point didn't really believe enough in the movie. It was a low budget movie for them. And we weren't even allowed to have our production offices on the Disney lot. We had to have them a couple blocks away. And we shot it in Mexico so that there would be no unions or anything, right? It was shot in Mexico City at Chirabusco Studios. The, um, what that meant was that unlike most studio pictures, there wasn't a lot of kind of overhead. They couldn't charge studio overhead. And there were no big producers, big producer names. Nobody had what they call a gross deal on it. So that meant that the net profits, the point, were valuable. So I made more money on that movie than anything else I've ever wow. done. I think maybe Stuart did too, because they couldn't hide it. On the sequel, of course, they piled it yeah. up with costs. And, you know, the way a studio does that, you know, they, they used to do. Now they don't really develop stuff like they did. But that, back in those days, studios used to keep, they used to give what they call housekeeping deals, which is they would put up producers, directors, and writers on the lot and they would give them offices and pay their secretary and all that and then when they got a project going they'd take all the money that they'd pay that they had put on the books up till then and that goes against the movie oh, okay. against the profits of the movie and also they would give people what they call gross points like a star will get a percentage of the box office before it's even profit. So eventually you can't make a profit on a movie. There is yeah. no net. But the, um, when, they, when they did the sequel, of course, it was all, had a whole bunch of, you know, when they develop, when they have a housekeeping deal for a big producer set, and that, then they've got, they've spent a lot of money and the, 
this producer doesn't have any real project that's going into production, they'll put them on a movie that is going into production and then take all those costs and put them to that movie. And that's a way to kind of write off those costs. So the original Honey didn't have that. So there was actual real wow. profit. And I must say that as much as disappointed as I am for me and Stuart, that we didn't end up, he didn't end up directing the movie. I didn't end up, I was co-producer and we were co-writers. Um, but, and, but the idea when you, when I, I remember when I saw the McDonald's cup glass with the kid riding the BM yeah. and I went, that was my idea. That was my idea. And you go, wow, that's crazy to think that someone like me could have an idea that ends up at McDonald's cup. And that's quite a, I think we all want that. We all want to think that some stupid idea we have kind of makes it into the, um, into the zeitgeist, you know, into the culture. We kind of want to have some, make a ripple somewhere, right? So, of course, that's why it's fun to see these old movies that someone like you still wants to talk about because you go, wow. Somebody spills water. Yeah. Really? Yep. Why? You know, who can, you know, why would they? Brian, this has been awesome. Thank you for spending over two hours. I mean, I really appreciate it, man. It was fun. Anytime. Isn't it amazing how full circle some of the in- interviews that I've done have come or any interviews that you listen to? I'll be selfish and just think that I'm the only person that you listen to. But the fact that we were talking about John John Huston and his IMDb and his filmography and the criterion that was Brian Brian was watching, and he goes, "Wow, Annie, how did he do Annie?" And then end of the interview, "How did you do that? How did you do Honey I Shrunk the Kids?" You know, it is a scary concept. You get shrunk. There's ants. There's worms. There's everything in the lawn that can eat you. Oh, I get it. But just think about everything else on his IMDb. Special effects in your face, deep-rooted, some love stories. You know, Bride Every Animator is a love story, an odd love story, a love triangle story. Maybe there's four people involved in that. I don't know. But yeah, thank you, Brian, again. Anything we talked about in the interview is in the episode notes. And your homework is to watch Bride Every Animator. It's free on Tubi, which if you don't have Tubi, get on it. It's free you're watching in your browser. There's an app for your phone, app for your TV. They have so many classics on there, and they have this one. So that's your homework to watch that. And don't forget to review, rate, share our podcast, follow us on all social media at Sequels Only, and don't forget to check out our website, SequelsOnly.com. Good night.